That was some kind of worship, wasn't it? It's worth coming to. And to be in the presence of God and sing his praises, what a delight. Amen. (laughs) Many years ago, a small boy went into an old country store, and to his delight, the place was filled with barrels of candy. Remember how they used to do it? And this little boy was looking around, leaned over one, really excited, looked deeply into a barrel of gumdrops, and fell in. (laughs) And he prayed this prayer, dear Lord, may my capacity be equal to my opportunity. (laughs) And that's what I think of as we began today a study in the book of Romans. May my capacity somehow equal this amazing opportunity. Starting a study in the book of Romans means we're going to be at it for a while. And uh, that is going to be exciting. Don't ask me how long. I'm trying to figure out whether it's 50 or 60 sermons. Uh, Not all at once. (laughs) Over a period of a couple years, but... Anyhow, the point is, it's going to be a rich study. This is Paul's magnum opus, his great work, if you can evaluate Scripture from a human point of view. This is the book that is extremely influential. It's recognized as one of the most powerful books that has ever been written, and it has transformed many lives. History tells us of the influential theologian by the name of Augustine, noted as one of the greatest minds ever in the realm of theology. One day he was sitting under a fig tree in deep distress, weeping over his own sin, desperately convicted, and he heard a young child singing a song, take up and read, take up and read. Near to him was a copy of the book of Romans, and he picked it up and he began to read. Happened to be Romans 13, and Augustine was wonderfully saved. He believed and surrendered to the God of grace. It was centuries later that another well-known theologian by the name of Martin Luther was influenced by the book of Romans. Luther was a scholar He was a monk, ardent, committed, but lost. He was actually teaching a series of lectures on on the book of Romans, and it suddenly dawned on him for the very first time, as he expressed it, that he saw the righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. And he wrote in his journal, thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The monk who was trying to win his salvation by good works immediately saw that it was all of grace and he was reborn in a moment. And then the well-known John Wesley, the father of Methodism, a brilliant young man with a sensitive conscience not only to God but to social concerns, left his native England 
to come to the colonies and work for God and serve God. He worked in Savannah, Georgia and some other areas, but then went home to England extremely discouraged, for he did not have in his heart assurance of salvation from the God he loved and served. Back in England, one day he wandered into a meeting, reluctantly so, and they were reading the preface of Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. And those famous words, John Wesley said, my heart was strangely warmed. He heard the gospel. It wasn't about his deeds. It wasn't about his good works. It was all about God's great work of grace in the person of his son. And Wesley said, I felt I did in Christ trust alone, trust him alone for salvation. And assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death and sin and death. Oh, that's the gospel of the grace of God revealed in this mighty book of Romans. To study it for 20 years would not do it justice. Let's open up the book of Romans to the very first chapter and something of an introductory message as we come to verse one to meet the author, human author of the book. I hope you understand that the real author of the book is the Holy Spirit. Romans one, verse one, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. This is actually a letter following the normal conventions of the day. When we write a letter, we write the person that we're writing it to at the top, and then the body of the letter, and then we sign it at the end, sincerely yours. But in that day, it was different. The author put their name first, and then there would be the name of the recipient, and then some type of greeting, and then they would get into the body of the letter, which Paul is following. He gives us his uh, name first. The Apostle Paul, who was called Saul of Tarsus, coming from a very cosmopolitan uh, city uh, in the empire of Rome, probably changed his name to Paul, My, uh, in, in many respects changed his name to Paul because he was traveling throughout the Roman Empire and to use his Roman name would be more advantageous to use the old name of Saul. Of course, it could be the fact that when he came to Christ, his identity was so radically changed, he thought he'd change his name as well. And the Apostle Paul adopted not only his Roman name, but the privileges of his Roman citizenship. Think of it. Paul was a Jew, scholarly Jew, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, as good as you could get, rising up to the top. But he was also a Roman citizen and added to that, studied in Greek culture so that he was very much aware of Hellenism and all the influence of the language and the culture upon the world of that day, which makes Paul a perfect candidate to write a book to a group of Gentiles in the biggest city of the world. The Apostle Paul was one who sat at the feet of Gamaliel, 
and learn the scriptures. But the Apostle Paul was the one who was the muscle and energy behind the persecution of the early church, and he hated Christians. He saw them as a sect of Judaism that had gone astray and had taken up the following of a, of a Messiah by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and all of that was wrong. And so, in dedication to the Old Testament law and the Old Testament scriptures, he was ready to fight anyone who blasphemed the name of God by calling himself the Son of God. That's the Apostle Paul who writes this book. By the way, he's writing to a church he never visited, a church that he didn't start. And maybe that is why Paul gives more of a of a revelation and description of himself at the beginning than he does in any of his other letters. And notice what he says about himself. By the way, the first seven verses in the original Greek language, it's all one verse of 90 words. And so we're going to be kind of taking some of those thoughts of this long sentence and breaking them down to better understand what he is saying. Paul says he is a servant. Should be translated slave. In the Roman Empire in that day, you had the upper class, the marque rior, riori, and then you had the lower class, the doulos, the slave. The slaves were not separated racially as slavery was in the early days of America. It was not because of race. It was, had a number of factors. It might have been that you were conquered by Rome and came to Rome to serve. It may be that you were poor and you could not fend for yourself, so you took a job as being a domestic worker which was the equivalent of a slave. Some slaves were tutors and teachers. So there was a, a myriad of occupations under this umbrella of slavery where 600 million people in Rome were called slaves. But the thing that was true about a slave is that they did not own their own lives. They weren't in charge of their own agenda and they had been purchased and belonged to another. When the Apostle Paul calls him a slave, calls himself a slave, he is saying, I don't belong to myself, and I have been purchased by another. Those who are believers have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. And we no longer live unto ourselves, but unto him, the one who died in our place and rose again on our behalf. Our dedication is to him. We are either slaves to self and sin, or by the grace of God, we've been emancipated to be slaves to Jesus Christ. And oh, what a blessed slavery it is. For his yoke is not burdensome, it is light, and it is easy, and it is a joy. So here is this slave, the one who once persecuted the church is now a slave to the church, the slave of Christ. He's the slave of the word of God. He's a person who has committed himself to the cause of someone greater than himself. He's also taking up the picture of a slave that was found in the Old Testament. 
Moses was the servant and slave of God, as was Joshua and David and all the Old Testament prophets. So it's nothing new. And in fact, it is very normal for a Christian. But he's not just a slave, he's an apostle. Not a self-appointed one, but one who has been called, chosen, divinely appointed with a commission. An apostle, one sent with a commission. It's striking, isn't it, when you see the comparison between the slave in humility and the apostle with opportunity? The slave is someone who was indeed looked upon as being low, but an apostle is someone who had great authority and was looked upon with favor, certainly among the early church. The slave is a general term. An apostle is a special term. And there aren't many apostles. You've got the original 12, and Judas fell and was replaced by Mattathias. And then just a couple others, because an apostle had to see Jesus and be commissioned by him. And Paul was after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But even in this station of apostle, Paul shows great humility. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'm the least of all the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Isn't that a great statement? Think about it. Whatever you are, you are by the grace of God. I should say whatever good there is in you, it's by his grace. But that's not all. The apostle says, I'm a servant. I'm an apostle and I'm set apart for the gospel. Now, here's probably a little play on words because the word Pharisee, which Paul was, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, means separation. And now Paul is saying, I am separated now to the gospel. The Pharisees separated themselves from the Gentiles, and now Paul is set apart for the gospel to the Gentiles. How ironic is that? Sometimes the things we never think we would do, we find ourselves doing, like going to church, like reading the Bible, like praying. Some of you vowed you'd never do that. As C.S. Lewis said, I had a lot of problems, but I would never stoop so low as to pray during his atheistic days until God won his heart. And so Paul set apart, much like Jeremiah, who was born set apart. Before you were born, the Lord said, I, I knew you. I set you apart. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. And Paul sensed that same unique calling, set apart. You set apart something for special use. It's a religious term, too. To be set apart has the idea of being consecrated and holy and devoted to something. And Paul was devoted to the gospel. The gospel was not something that Paul possessed. It was something that possessed Paul. I mean, it grabbed hold of all of him. 
And sometimes I think the greatest problem among Christians is simply this. We think that we've taken hold of Christ instead of having Christ take hold of us. A very different thing. If I'm holding on to Christ, if I've added Christ into my life, if he's part of it, then he can be in the periphery and I can move him where I want and I still control things. But when Christ possesses me, it's all about his agenda. And Paul said, I'm possessed by the gospel. It has, it has taken every fiber of my being, my mind, my will, my heart, are all devoted to Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting. Paul introduces the gospel in verse 1. I'm set apart for the gospel of God. And that is going to become the theme of the book of Romans. The gospel the good news of God. The gospel of God. The originator is not man, but God. This isn't the invention of the apostles. This isn't a new religion somehow created out of the need of a worshiper. It is a gospel come down from God. And by the way, the word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, where we get the English word evangelism. And it means good news. Say that with me. The gospel means good news. By the way, in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, when they were describing the wonderful announcement that the exile was over and the Hebrew people could go back to their land, they used, in the Greek, the word euangelion. Good news is being announced. You're set free from bondage and able to go back and worship the Lord of heaven. So Paul takes that same word and uses it. And notice this is not something novel, verse 2, but it was promised beforehand. The gospel of God originated by God and promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures by a multitude of prophets. It's not an afterthought in God's plan. It's not that God said, I think I'll do it this way. I think I'll work with the Jews. That's not working. I better come up with something else. I know. I'll send my son. No, no, this is part of God's plan. And I love the fact that it says in verse 2 that it is promised beforehand, this gospel of God, promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. You say, where is it promised? I say, all throughout the Holy Scriptures. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses said, there's going to come one like me that is greater than I. And the hope of the Messiah, the concept of a king, who would rule and reign over God's people, was born, and the Jewish people were constantly looking for their Messiah. And there would become one who would sit on David's throne, and he will rule in wisdom and power and might, and he'll be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. A child is born, a son is given, Messiah is coming. He's the son of man of Daniel chapter 11. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. And when you get to the New Testament, Jesus himself said in Luke 24, 
When you go back to the books of Moses and the Psalms and the prophets, they all speak of me. The central message of the entire Bible is Jesus. The continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament is Jesus. And we need to understand that this is not a novel and new message. It is the fulfillment of the message that God had planned for the ages. Martin Luther said, here the door is thrown wide open for an understanding of all Holy Scripture. That is, that everything must be understood in its relationship to Jesus. And when I read my Bible in the book of Psalms, I need to be seeing Jesus. When I read my Bible in the book of Leviticus, I need to be seeing Jesus. When I read my Bible in the book of Genesis, you get the idea. <laughs> Look for Jesus, because he's there. Sometimes in types and shadows. He is there in the Old Testament concealed. He is there in the New Testament revealed. And it's all about the Son of God. And I love the fact that the Apostle Paul does this thing about the gospel at the very beginning, so unconventional in a normal letter, but he wants people to understand the most important thing, and that is the gospel. And notice that the gospel is the gospel of the Son of God. For he tells us in verse 3, that this gospel regards the Son. It is regarding the Son of God, or regarding the Son, who according to the flesh was a descendant of David or was of the seed of David. So the focus is on Jesus Christ. He's mentioned four times in seven verses. But when Jesus, the gospel regarding Jesus is described, Paul says, I want you to see two perspectives, two planes, as it were, two stages. Number one, it regards the son who, according to the flesh, was the seed of David. This speaks of his humanity. This gives his divine lineage all the way back to the tribe of Judah. Deity's son is David's seed. The Messiah who was promised from David's to sit on David's throne from David's line is the seed of David. But not only is he the seed of David, he is the son of God. Verse 4. And who through the spirit of holiness, which is a Hebraism simply talking about the Holy Spirit, who through the spirit was appointed or declared to be and I've done a little bit of work on the text there because this is a title that we need to see. He's declared to be, by the Spirit, the Son of God in power. And that was declared at the resurrection from the dead. So here's the deal. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Ever heard that story? Born of the seed of David. They had to go to Bethlehem the city of David, because Joseph was of the house of David. And there Jesus is born 
of the tribe of Judah and the seed of David in humility. He is son of man. He's also son of God, but he's living incognito according to that title. He's always been the son of God. Jesus didn't begin to become. He didn't become the son of God when he was born or become the son of God at the resurrection or become the son of God at the ascension. He was ever eternally the son of God, but we just didn't get it. Now the miracles here and there, boom, boom. Ah, Son of God with power, Messiah with power, God in the flesh. And what did Jesus say? Don't talk about these right now. I tell you, don't tell anyone what just happened. (laughs) And the disciples are going, why not? It's a perfect time. And Jesus said, it's not time. Keep it under your hats. I'm son of God incognito for a while. You can't handle what's going to happen if you let the word out too soon. Ah, but then the resurrection takes place. And he is declared to be the son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead. It's proof that he always was the son of God. This seems to be such a carefully created parallelism that it might just be a little bit taken from a famous creed that the Romans were aware of. A Christological formula to emphasize the fact that our Savior is both man and God. He's humble, he's powerful. As a human being, he belongs to the same world we do. As God, he is beyond our world, yet he intersects with our world because of the gospel of his grace. And we'll find out the motive to do that. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Why? For God so loved the world. The resurrection then separates those two stages of his humility and his sovereignty. He is declared to be the exalted Lord. James Edwards said, at the resurrection, Jesus was constituted a son of God in power, whereas before the resurrection, he had been the son of God in suffering. Oh, but here's where it gets good. It's already been good, but this is really good. The gospel of God. The gospel regarding his son. Don't miss this last point. The gospel for all. Have you ever been on the outside of something? Have you ever played softball as a kid in elementary school? You know, forced to do it, recess. Teacher says you've got to do it. Gym teacher says it's a must. So you stand at a line, and two of the best players get to choose their teams. I'll take Fred. I'll take John. Got to get the girls too. Okay, I'll take Mary. I'll take Alice. And there you are, you know, kicking a stone, wishing you were anywhere else but in a lineup because you're the last one taken. Now, maybe it wasn't in baseball. Maybe you were good at baseball, but, uh, you know, maybe it's choosing teams in a spelling bee and the same thing happens. I'm not going to choose that guy. He can't spell his own name. And so, 
you're rejected. You're on the outside. We want a group of people, but not you. We're building a choir. Can you sing? You think you can. No, you can't. You're not in us. But the gospel doesn't go to the upper class. The gospel goes to everybody. That's me. Because I know, I know I'm a great sinner. And if Jesus came to save the good, I would be lost forever. But the gospel is for all. Verse 5, through him, this seed of David, son of God, through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Paul realized he was an apostle by God's grace. He didn't deserve it, called to be one. And he said, our gospel is for everyone, and it's a gospel that calls people to obedience. It's a wonderful phrase. All the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Perhaps a better translation is to the obedience of faith. For faith is the response of obedience. The goal is that faith is born in the heart. And when faith is born in the heart, people began to follow. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a wonderful quote when he says, only he who believes is obedient and only he who was obedient believes. What does that mean? It means when you, you're touched by grace, you believe, and when you believe, you obey, because the point of the gospel is to get people to embrace by faith the person of Christ, and when they do, they obey. That's why it's the obedience of faith, or faith that leads to obedience. By the way, this same phrase is used at the very end of the book of Romans, chapter 16, verse 26, which gives you a, an inclusio, a bookend of beginning one way and ending the same way, which makes everything in the middle of the book connected. To this message of the gospel of God regarding his son that goes to everyone so that they will, by faith, obey. And if you forget it at the end, he says it again. It's all about the obedience of the faith. The fact that the gospel goes out to everyone means that sinners like you can be saved and sinners like me can be redeemed. Oh, but get this. Not only are we called to obedience we're called to belong. Verse 6. And you are also among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus. So the gospel goes out to all these Gentiles. The city of Rome was primarily Gentile. And now, verse 6. You're among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus. One of my favorite phrases. Jesus, my Lord, will love me forever. From him, his love, no evil can sever. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. Not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. I 
belong. I was on the outside before, but now I belong to the family of God. By the grace of God in the good news called the gospel. And then add on to that, verse 7. He's writing to all who are in Rome, finally gets to his target audience. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. I'm called to be obedient. I'm called to belong. I'm called to be holy. I'm called to be loved. God's love precedes his call. We love him because he first loved us. Yeah, that's grace. It's a gospel for all. Paul was on a special task as an apostle, and we are called to be special people, called to be saints is sometimes the translation. And we really have a misunderstanding of that word saint. The word saint is not some group of the specially elite who are canonized into a position far above everyone else. That is so, so wrong. Because in our sin, we are on the same level, condemned. And in our salvation, we are the same level, accepted by grace. But saints are those who are called to live a saintly life. They're not always saintly, but they're called to live that way. Or to put it this way, we're called to live like Jesus. And he ends by saying, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is the one word that summarizes the whole gospel. And that's why we're talking about the gospel of God's grace in the book of Romans. Grace to meet our sin need, that's the first few chapters. Grace revealed in justification, chapter 4 and 5. Grace on how to live in the realm of sanctification, 6, 7, and 8. Grace in the realm of sovereignty. Grace, chapter 12 and to the end of the book, on how to relate with other people. It's all of God's grace. And that's why this book is so thrilling. And to look at the end of verse 5, this is all done for the sake of the name. It's all done for the glory of Jesus Christ. When you belong to him and you are loved by him, called to be his own, you want everything you do to be done for his glory. That's why we exist. When you talk about the mission of South Church, we've defined it this way. To glorify the God of heaven by making disciples here on earth. And maybe we should add the phrase, just like Jesus. Let's pray. I am so amazed that your love has touched my soul. And Lord, may I never get over it. Every day, I need to live in the gospel that says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
And to those who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to be called children of God who are called to belong and loved forever. Touch our souls today, especially those who don't know you. May they cry out. May they cry out in their heart for forgiveness of sin and salvation in Christ, which he longingly, lovingly provides. He stands at the door and knocks. If anyone hears the voice, open the door, and he will come in. Amen. Amen.